Before we get to this episode of the 360 Experience, I have something very exciting that I want to share with you. If you haven't heard, I've been working on a project for over a year now, and it is now live. And it is my goal that this project will change the mortgage industry forever, changing the way that you learn, grow, and find success as a mortgage professional. It's a learning platform that includes a vast array of educational material, support documents, and implementation tools. We're covering business planning, sales, marketing, culture, systems of customer service, time management, personal development. It is all-encompassing, and it is backed by the finest and most giving faculty of teachers that this industry has ever assembled. People who you're familiar with if you've been listening to my show, but it's more than that. It's about community. It's about like-minded mortgage professionals helping each other, making this a better industry. Folks, welcome to The Loan Atlas, and it is now available for you to check out and to consider becoming a member, and we sure hope you do because we would love to guide you on this journey of achieving higher levels of success in all aspects of your life. Go to the link in the show notes below, click on the link, and find out more. And now, for the next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast. Well, hello and welcome once again to another episode of the 360 Experience Podcast. I am your host, Tim Brahim, and I'm super excited to have a conversation today with Brian Mahan. Now, Brian Mahan is an expert on the subject matter of somatic experiencing therapy. And you may not have heard about somatic experiencing before, but it is a growing widely accepted modality of healing that is available across the United States and across the world. And Brian's been practicing for 20 years. I was a client of his, a patient of his, if you will, for many years. And my wife is currently working with him. So I can attest to the power of somatic experiencing. Now you may be saying, what, what is somatic experiencing? How would this apply to me? Here's the reality of it. We have all experienced trauma, anxiety, fear, and deregulation in our life. And most of us experience it every single week in our work environment, in our home environment, and it is pervasive and it affects our experience of life. And Brian is a practitioner that helps people release old wounds and old trauma. We're going to talk about it in the context of business. We're going to talk about it in the context of your personal life as well. In this episode, you're going to learn what the difference is between talk therapy and even coaching versus somatic experiencing work, and the difference is vast. You're gonna learn about the origin of this field of practice, in particular, the, the founder of it, Peter Levine, whose book, Waking the Tiger, is an epic book. Um, and you're going to learn how to practically create purpose in your life, which will happen in the second half of the conversation, which is a beautiful formula that Brian outlines. So sit down, relax, get ready to take some notes. This is gonna be a really valuable episode for you in so many ways, in your business, in your life, and it's certainly one that you can listen to with your children, with your spouse, and forward along to friends. Now, before we get started with this episode with Brian Mahan, I just want to remind you that if you're not subscribing to the show, please do. Um, the more that we have subscribers, the more that I can get people like Brian to come on the show. Um, I would also encourage you to forward this along to anybody you think might find it to be valuable. Uh, make sure, if you would please, that you are giving us a like if you like this episode and making comments on YouTube if you're watching it there. Um, as always, this episode is sponsored by The Loan Atlas. And without further ado, my conversation with Brian Mahan. Brian. You look fantastic, man. 
<laughs> like Thank really, you. like you look 10 years younger than the last time I saw you. That's crazy. I'm going to be 59 next month. You look fantastic. Your skin looks clear. You look happy. Um, you, you were telling me offline that you're living in Mexico. Now tell everybody where you're living. You used to live in LA. Um, yeah. So where I'm do you live now, now in Merida, Mexico in the Yucatan. It's a beautiful 500 year old, uh, you know, colonial city that a massive city has grown around and it's considered the second safest city in all of Latin America and the second safest city, I'm sorry, the safest city in all of Latin America and the second safest city in both North and South America. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. You know, we were in San Miguel Allende a year and a little over a year ago. That also seems like a really safe city too. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it has had that reputation, but I think it's gotten a little bit more dangerous in the last year or so. Mm -hmm. Well, but, it, was, you know. it was good for us. So we, we, we all got out of there alive. So that's, that's a good news. So, um, where do we begin? So uh, in my intro, I talked about the fact that, you know, I've known you for, you know, pretty close to a decade now, although I haven't seen you in, you know, a few years, you know, it's probably been a good three, three and a half years since then you've been working with my wife. And again, thank you for, for the time that you put into her. Um, so how long have you been practicing somatic experiencing and give us an overview of what somatic experiencing is, because I have a feeling that most people tuning in don't have context around it. I think it's very important for them to understand what somatic experience is. Yeah, well, absolutely. absolutely. Um, well, I just realized, I don't know, a couple of few weeks ago that December 21st this year is the 20 year anniversary of my car wreck. And my car wreck is what ultimately led me into this work. And um, so I was in a catastrophic car wreck on December 21st. Uh, my car flipped end over end and rolled three times across three lanes of traffic and slid on the driver's door 150 feet and crashed into a concrete wall. So, you know, a bit of a life event. And um, subsequent to that, I started having panic attacks. But I didn't know they were panic attacks. I thought I was either going crazy or had become possessed. And uh, in the mania of panic attacks, um, I had convinced myself that it was the latter. And so I sought a referral for an exorcist. And um, thank God she sent me to a somatic experiencing practitioner instead of a priest. And um, so after three sessions with a somatic experiencing practitioner, my panic attacks stopped. And I haven't had one in 20 years now. Within two weeks of that, session that the, the within two weeks of my panic attack stopping um i entered the training and it's a um it's the work of dr peter levine it's taught in uh, i think 130 countries and 25 languages or something now um, and it's considered the world's foremost approach to dealing with trauma and we look at trauma through a different lens uh, than traditional talk therapy or um, you know psychology psychiatry so we look at it more of um, how the the brain and the nervous system become disorganized and dysregulated as a result of overwhelm or underwhelm. So extraordinary events, whether they're something like my car wreck or obviously acts of war. Um, and then also the little T traumas. So things like shame. And so that's really where one of the main focuses of my practice is and has been for the last several years is working with the trauma of shame. And we have to look at them as physiological conditions not as psychological disorders. And so somatic experiencing is, is thought to be a short-term therapy, a naturalistic approach, a bottom-up 
approach. So rather than tr traditional talk therapy, it's kind of a top-down approach and somatic experiencing is a bottom-up approach. So we're dealing primarily with the physiology. And as a result of that, then a lot of the you know, psychological components that can happen in the aftermath of traumatic events can also get resolved. But what I've noticed over the last 20 years of doing this work is that what ultimately ends up happening is my clients' beliefs start changing. And as their beliefs change, their behaviors change. And so nothing changes until our beliefs do. Our beliefs drive our behaviors, our behaviors become habituations. And so we can try to manage symptoms, we can try to change behaviors, but they're oftentimes short-lived because the underlying belief that is driving those behaviors is still in place. And so anytime we have a traumatic experience, whether it is um, something physiological like a car wreck or something that's more insidious like shame, we form beliefs. We form beliefs about ourselves, about the world at large, about the other people involved, the location, the situation, the behaviors, whatever's going on. And those belief systems drive our behaviors, form our personality, and ultimately, and to a great extent, uh, create who we are and how we see the world and how we interact with it. You know, that's a great <clears throat> high-level summary. So I, I'm glad I asked that question. I appreciate <laughs> the answer very much. So I'm going to want to drill down <clears throat> quite Absolutely. a bit. And as I said in the opening, I apologize in advance to the listener if I'm clearing my throat of dealing with a little bit of a, a flu right now. So I imagine that somebody that's listening, tuning in is saying, oh, well, I, I don't have any of that. And right. I, I, I'm under the impression, having done this work with you and having done a lot of work around um, both psychology and somatic type work and other forms, that we all have traumas. Um, I remember Gabor Mate, who I'm sure you know Gabor. I mean, he is sure. a legend and, and really a terrific teacher. I remember him saying in a documentary that I was watching that trauma is relative. So what might be traumatic for me may not be traumatic for you or your or your sister or you know somebody else who grew right. up in the same household. Um, I'd love for you to speak to that. And let's also start to talk about how trauma impedes our life experience. And maybe you could give some examples. Sure. So uh, to concur with Gabor, so um, any two animals or any two humans carrying out the same behavior at the same time in the same location can have two completely different experiences. For one person, that might be an exhilarating experience. And for another one, it might be a terrifying experience. Um, and how we respond to events is oftentimes predetermined by not only our instinctual responses, which are without thought or reason, uh, but also based on our life history, just the day-to-day -day of our lives. Now, one of the reasons that we look at trauma specifically now as physiological and not psychological is that we can become traumatized pre-verbal, pre-cognitive, and pre-conceptual. So before we can think and reason and put things into perspective, we can become traumatized from the birth experience. So if we can become traumatized before we can even rationally conceptualize it or think about it, then obviously there's another system at play, and that's the lower brain, not the higher brain. The higher brain is kind of our thinker, and the lower brain is our behavior. So it's the freeze, flight, fight, 
free, uh, I'm sorry, freeze flight fight fawn response um, that all human beings exhibit as a defense mechanism against any kind of threat. So um, it is relative because everyone sees the world and interacts in the world through their own lens, which is based in their previous life experiences and the beliefs that they form as a result of those experiences. But I know that you know that there that you have people that you know that um, you know have a tendency to be in a constant fight response and others who have a tendency to be in a state of collapse or in a frozen response or some people who are kind of runners who just avoid situations and people in conflict in their lives. And so that's one of the ways that we look at um, perhaps someone is traumatized is that they've gotten stuck in a basic defense response based on their history. So, and that, um, and that basic dispensary, uh, that basic response, defense response is tied to their beliefs, which is their behavior, which drives their behavior. And it's based upon past experiences, right. whether they can remember them or not is what I'm hearing you it, say. Exactly. Because we have, we have two different kinds of memory. We have or more than two, but two main kinds of memory. The first is implicit memory, and that's the body memory. So the body remembers things in a way in which we don't necessarily remember them explicitly, because we think of memory as explicit memory of having images and thoughts and emotions and and all of that. Um, and so these, this implicit memory can exist, uh, or can, you know, is online and part of our experience um, you know, in utero and through the birth process, up through that developmental stage where we begin to be able to think and reason. And the explicit memory neurobiologically doesn't even come online until about a, a year and a half to two years old. And so um, we're influenced by both. But the crazy thing about explicit memory, the way we think of memory is that there's research that shows that the memories that we have of our own lives are 50% accurate. Yeah. So half, half the I stuff we half the, the stuff we think is made up. <laughs> exactly. So you know, there's all kinds of filters through which all of this information gets into our brains and gets into the cells of our bodies and um, you know, creates neurological pathways, right? Because you know, not to get completely academic here but you know what we're looking at in healing of anything right healing of any type um, we're ultimately looking at neuroplasticity we're looking at rewiring the brain and so if you imagine these beliefs and these behaviors and thoughts clusters and that kind of thing that are all bound together that drive certain kinds of behaviors that's like a neural pathway and it's a neural pathway that's created from repetition consistently over time and so in order to heal, we either have to clear out the short circuits in that neural pathway, or we have to create a new neural pathway. And so there is a neurobiology to healing, and it does require repetition because that's just how the brain fires and wires is through repetition. Now, yeah, let me, let me, uh, let me anchor in, um, a couple of, of things that I've heard um, from other sources for you to confirm and just summarize. So 50% of the, of the beliefs that we have are not even true, okay? 
and I presume that those beliefs are in place because they're there to protect us. Um, we, we fabricate in order to keep ourselves safe. This is the, the ego's job is to, mm -hmm. to think into the future and to structure um, a defense strategy. Okay. And I'm going to get in a moment to how this plays out in business, because I, I think it'd be good to anchor that into that just for a Absolutely. moment. But, but then <clears throat> additionally, um, what I've also heard is that we have somewhere between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. And that those thoughts, roughly 80% of those thoughts that I've heard different statistics are the same thoughts we had yesterday. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to my days at the University of Santa Monica, I remember when Ron Holnick was facilitating one of our, my fellow students, and the, the student was saying, you know, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that I am caught in this thought loop and I don't want to think it anymore. And he, and he helped him reframe the thought into a, a, a different circuitry. And then he said, now, how many times do you think you've had that thought? And the guy said, like hundreds of thousands of times over the course of my life. And he goes, so what makes you think just if you change the thought now, it's going to rewire it. You're going to have to do the work to rewire those, those thoughts in your brain, which is what you're speaking to here. Do you want to, do you want to say anything further about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's brilliant. So, um, there is a lot of conjecture and new thought that all we have to do is if we have a negative thought we change it into a positive one but again to what you just said if we have habituated the quote-unquote negative thought tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of time times then how do we think that just changing it now to a positive thought is actually going to effectuate any kind of change um however here's the here's the real question i have is if we notice that we have this negative thought loop or these intrusive thoughts that keep plaguing us, rather than just trying to change them, what if we were to get curious about them instead and lean in and, and wonder, why does this thought keep coming up? And as I'm having this thought, what starts happening in my body? How do I start to feel? Now, if we can direct our attention in, inward into what we're feeling, because we we feel everything we think about, and we think about everything we feel. So we have the thought come in, we meet it, we greet it, we acknowledge it, we get curious about it, lean into it, allow the thought to be there, notice what starts happening in the body. You know, in a simple way, is there an emotional charge that comes in with that thought? then what do you think about the having that emotional charge? And so there's a loop that we can get lost in there too. And so one of what I like to do in those moments is when this thought comes in and I have the feeling that it correlates with it, if I hang out in the feeling of that and I notice how and where I'm feeling what in my body, I can ask myself, is there anything old and familiar about the way this feels? And in that inquiry, the higher brain is a diligent servant, and it's going to try to find answers to your question. And so you might notice, yeah, this is a really old and familiar feeling. And then memories can start bubbling up of previous times in your life that you had a similar thought or similar feeling or similar thought and feeling together. And you can continue to kind of lean into it and feel into it more as, as each kind of memory comes in. You hold the space for that memory. You notice how your body shifts and changes, what you start feeling in that. And then you inquire again, how much earlier can I remember feeling this? And we might be able to, I mean, especially if you 
have the help and assistance of somebody guiding you through the process, um, get to the original wound uh, where that original belief was formed and where those thoughts come from. And then we can actually work on that, that, that emotional charge that's in the system to get the neurobiology, to get the nervous system to unwind and discharge that emotion, that old stuck emotion that keeps looping. Um, and then the nervous system can return to greater resilience and uh, find its equilibrium again. I have so many questions um, and so many things that I want to comment on. So I, as I mentioned to you before we hit record, I just got done spending seven days in Cancun at a Dr. Joe Dispenza meditation retreat. And it was incredible. And he, a lot of his work is in alignment with, with what you do. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that my wife and I were talking about is that, you know, like when you sit with yourself for five hours, because one of our meditations was five hours, mm -hmm. you can't escape the habitual thought patterns that continue to cycle. And one of the things that I was working with was some physical ailments. And what became very clear to me is how riddled by fear I've been my whole life and how it's driven so many behaviors, so many actions, so many of my person, so much of my personality structure is based upon fear. So as an example for, for, to, to make this practical for people. So one of the things that I've been working on for a very long time is patience and my desire to be kind to people, especially people that I love that are my colleagues that I work with or my family. And what will happen is, is that I will often find myself in a situation, especially if I am with someone who likes to talk slow and pontificate and go into detail and wants to collaborate with me. And the feeling, so going to the feeling, the feeling that I used to describe it as was I feel like I'm falling off a building to my death. Like it's that mm. severe. <laughs> now, I know the source. The source is a situation or several with my father. And what I'd like you to talk about, and maybe you could you could either use my example as an example or pick another one, but I'd like you to go a little bit deeper into the actual process of somatic experience because I think it's very important. I can't count how many times you said to me, stop, I don't need the story. Right. What do you feel in your body? Let's let's go there and let's talk about that. Please explain that. Well, first of all, um, Tim, never pray for patience or you will be standing in the grocery store line behind the person with all the coupons. <laughs> the universe will provide for you plenty of opportunities for you to experience impatience if yes. you pray for patience. So, um, yeah, so, you know, these these feelings that we get, the 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 value and importance of feeling what are what we're feeling is based actually in some seminal research that was done by Dr. Eugene Genlin at the University of Chicago. He did a 20-year research trying to figure out why some patients were getting better and others weren't in a therapeutic practice. And what he found was, after 20 years, that the relationship between the practitioner and the client was very important, that the techniques that the, that the, that the practitioner was using needed to be in alignment with the problems that the client had. But the single most determining factor as to whether or not anyone gets better in any practice with any practitioner 
is based in the client's ability to feel sensations in their bodies, to language those sensations appropriately, to then attach the right emotion or affect to that cluster of sensations, and then have the right, establish the right meaning or belief about having that emotion, feeling that emotion and expressing it. So the foundation of the body-mind connection in the therapeutic practice began from the seminal research. And it was where Dr. Peter Levine and somatic experiencing was kind of born. Um, and so that is why I, like you said, I will would stop you all the time and say, okay, let's, you know, let's see what would happen if you drop out of your head and into your body and feel what's here. Um, because there is this body memory. If a baby is is crawling across the kitchen floor and uses the hot stove as leverage to try to stand up, even before that baby can think and reason and speak, and you know, it, it, it the body needs to remember that that white box is hot and not to touch it ever again. So this is a an an implicit memory. It's without any kind of thought or reason or perspective, and so when you are in that place of feeling the impatience and feeling like you are falling to your death, do you have any sense, memory, or recall of how and where you were actually feeling what in your body at that time? Yeah, the 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 oldest memory that I can access is, and it's not a specific event, but it's an, it's an event that happened numerous times where... My parents had this like stained glass window on their front door. And when my dad would come home from work and he'd pull into the driveway, the headlights would shine through that stained glass and like pixelate it. Mm -hmm. And what I've been able to do is trace it back to the terror that I would often feel when I saw those lights, because mm -hmm. I didn't know who was going to walk in the door and I had to really protect myself. So that that like that's like probably five years old type feeling, I'm guessing. <clears throat> so you're so you did a great job of of discovering what the triggers were. And the question is, what was that terror? How did you feel that terror in your body? What happened inside of you when you would see those colored lights dance across the walls as the car pulled up in the driveway? That I can't remember. But you remember it was the terror of not knowing who was going to walk through the door. Yeah. Was it going to be good dad or bad dad? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. There were there were so many incidents where he, you know, one time I touched my teeth to the tines of a fork and he got mad at me and reprimanded me and I was crying. And because I was crying on the next bite, I did it again. And he like slammed his fist on the kitchen table, screamed at me, stormed out of the house and didn't come back until the next day. Like that, that kind of like crazy, unpredictable behavior. And I have to presume that the place that I felt it for two reasons, I presume this was in, in my solar plexus in the pit of my gut. And there's two reasons for that. One is because I've historically had health challenges there mm -hmm. um, and they're clearly energetically related. Mm -hmm. And secondly is when we did our work together and you would take me back into old memories. One of the, I mean, the primary place that I would feel, start to feel nauseous and I would start burping and it was like sour and it was like really bizarre that like all of this acid was coming up in my digestive tract just by 
by experiencing an old memory. So right. I, I think that's a fair statement that that's where it's from. Right. So the terror that you felt is the terror of falling out of favor. As infants and children, instinctually, we understand that if we fall out of favor, we die. And so even now you have this feeling of you're, you're, you know, you're falling to your death, right? We feel as though we're going to die because we're hardwired as infants with a longing for belonging and therefore a need to please because our lives depend on others. We're the only animal on the planet that spends 25% of its life, 100%, 100% dependent upon others. So the terror of the breaking of that interpersonal bridge, the loss of that relationship on an instinctual level can equate to death. And what we're talking about here is shame. Shame is the terror of the loss of that relationship. It's the terror of falling out of favor, rejection neglect, abandonment, being cast out or shunned. And all of that could lead to our death. And so that's why, you know, I think shame is the, you know, the original wound, the moral wound, and um, it's life and death for us. So here, again, to anchor it in for the listener. So here's how it plays out. Okay. So because of that shame, because of the terror of falling out of favor, the greatest body of work that I'm doing personally right now at 56 years old is learning how to draw healthy boundaries and say no to people when they request my time. And the reason is because I have operated my whole life from that place of fear of not being in favor and then for, therefore say yes to everything exactly. and create this dynamic where I'm constantly feeling like I'm falling off the building because I have so much shit to do. And anybody that slows me down puts me into a situation where I feel the fear of death. It's that extreme. That's it. And so when someone speaks very slowly and really takes their time in trying to engage with you, your higher brain is like, dude, I got a hundred other things to do. I've got to survive. I've got this, you know, so there's so many balls in the air right now. I don't have time to slow down and sit here and, and you know, and be a subject to your pace and rhythm. And at the same time, you have this internalized drive to remain in favor and connected. And so there's, you know, so there's that longing for belonging and the need to please. And at the same time, there's the internal conflict of, how am I going to, you know, uh, do everything in a day that I need to do in a day in order to maintain my world and life as I know it? So continuing on, because I think I hijacked it a little bit. So you go into your body and you mm -hmm. feel and you feel a sensation. Let's say it's tightening in the jaw or dullness and sadness in your chest or pain in your neck or something in your abdomen like me. What do you then do with that to help rewire and regulate the nervous system, as you mentioned? Right. Well, this is the difference between what historically we would call catharsis and what we're learning we can do now is actually process emotion. So catharsis is just a release of steam out of the pressure cooker. It's just an expression of emotion. And then the valve closes and the steam builds again. There's no real healing that transpires just from an emotional outlet or out, you know, uh, you know, expression. 
But when we can slow things down and we can break that emotion down or that feeling down into its, its individual sensations, then we can bring our attention awareness into one of them and get curious about it and willing to feel it until it begins to resolve. Because ultimately, sensation is language. So it's the language of the nervous system. Which is the which is governed by the brain, right? So our bodies are talking to us through sensation. And the most important part of any communication is listening. And so we need to learn how to listen to our emotion by feeling it. So to give an example, if anxiety, let's say, is a combination of an elevated heart rate, trembling and shaking hands, pressure in the chest, pressure behind or, or a heaviness in the chest, pressure behind the eyes. Um, expression of heat, clammy palms, right? There's all this stuff that's happening all at once. This thing, you know, that the, these sensations are firing all over the place. Then our higher brain starts to think about it. Uh-oh, I'm feeling something. Something's wrong. I got to fix it. I got to change it. I got to get out of it. And then we distract ourselves or disconnect from it or, um, you know, try to shake our hands out. We're doing all this thing to try to change what we're feeling. Whereas if instead we could be willing to sit in the discomfort, to feel all of these different sensations. And then we can ask ourselves, of these six or seven sensations that are going off right now, which is most tolerable? So maybe that is the sweating on your palms. And so you bring your attention awareness into just feeling the sweating on your palms, letting it be there, noticing, isn't this fascinating? My body is starting to perspire out of the palms of my hands. And if you just hang out with that long enough, it, the, the nervous system will start to regulate and that will abate. Then you can come back in and go, okay, now that that's not here, what's the most tolerable? Well, maybe that at that point, it's the, you know, the heaviness on your chest. And so you bring your attention and awareness into becoming curious about feeling that heaviness, right? My definition of intolerable is it's time to go to the emergency room. So if I don't have to go to the emergency room, I can tolerate it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want to feel it. I wish it would stop. But if I got, if I if I'm able to tolerate it, if I'm able to get curious about it, if I can be with that heaviness on my chest, imagine that maybe it's you know you have the image of an elephant sitting on your chest, or you know a, one of those great big you know um, one of those big iron things that uh, the coy wily coyote used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. I don't even know yeah. what those things were, but I know what you're talking about. An anvil, an anvil. So, you know, so you can picture that anvil, you know, sitting on your chest. You can feel the weight of it and the pressure of it. And you can realize, you know what? This isn't sending me to the emergency room. I can handle this. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it, but let me feel it. Let me just stay with it. It'll start to abate. Now we don't have anxiety anymore. We have something else. Anxiety was the collection of the eight sensations or symptoms. Now we have six. So we're actually processing this, right? We can do the same thing with sadness, with anger, with fear, Um and it's a way of paying attention and allowing the body to express itself the way that it needs to and for us to listen to it simply by feeling it. And then the nervous system can unwind and discharge and reorganize and return to equilibrium. And that's where we want to be, right? It's, we've come to believe that if we feel anything, something's wrong. But we want to feel... We want to, you know, a lot of people, you know, just want to feel the happy, joyous and free and the, you know, the the ease and the, the peace and the calm and all of that. But that's unrealistic. That's an unrealistic expectation. We are, you know, we are sentient beings. We feel all kinds of things and all of the things that we feel, if we can reorient 
to it as this is communication. It's important. It needs to be paid attention to. It needs to be felt. And there's a reason for it here. It's trying to get our attention. Maybe there's something here that I can learn from or I can grow from or I can heal from. Well, hello, friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.